The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Just a, a small little introduction. That um, this is a sati center event. For those of you who've been here before, maybe what? That what does that mean? <laughs> you may have seen me sitting here uh, in the exact same uh, place, uh, and it's an IMC event. So Sati Center is a sister organization to IMC, and it um, has a little bit different emphasis on uh, education, whereas IMC is about practice. But I'm going to be uh, blending both of them. So there'll be a little bit about, we'll be talking about what do some of the early scripture suttas say about mindfulness, as well as uh, we'll be doing some practice. So just kind of a heads up that uh, a day long for Sati Center usually has a little bit more of that emphasis. For example, like I have handouts. If I were doing a day long just on mindfulness practice, I would not have handouts, right? We would just be practicing. So that's in terms of your experience, um, how things are a little bit different with Sati Center. And if you would like to make a donation, uh, Sati Center um, does their donations independent, separate from IMC. And they have a one-basket system, as opposed to IMC has a two-basket system, one for the teacher and one for the IMC. Sati Center just has one. Just donations go to Sati Center, and then they decide how much goes to the teacher and how much goes to the center and things like that. So, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Diana Clark. Quite happy to be here. I, I'll say just a little bit about myself. Is that, um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what to say. Like what's uh, relevant or important or what really matters. Um, I'll say this maybe. That um, a number of years ago, I kind of stumbled upon uh, meditation through yoga. Maybe some of you have a similar experience. And it changed my life. It just changed my life in such a remarkable way. And I just felt like I wanted to dedicate my life to this practice and exploring it. And that's what I've done since then. So I'm one of those people that kind of has an, uh, a bent towards thinking about things, analyzing things. Um, I have a PhD in a scientific topic. So it was just felt uh, a way for me to kind of, one way to explore this was to go back to graduate school and to study Buddhist studies. So I've done that. But of course, that's not why I fell in love with meditation, it was about the practice. So I haven't counted it up recently, but probably I've spent over two years in silence on meditation, like cumulatively, if you put all these different retreats together. So I've done a, cer a certain amount of study and a certain amount of practice, and my hope is to kind of bring these two together in a way that um, kind of meets what uh, you would like, where you are, what you want. So my intention today, as I said, is to do some practice, but also to do a lot of kind of like discussion as opposed to just me sitting up here lecturing. That's boring. Who wants to listen to hours of lecture? So I'll be asking questions and we'll have discussions. And 
as we go through the day, you'll discover that a lot of things are worthwhile discussing. Maybe I'll say that if you are hoping that I'll have some dogmatic approach to how things are, then you'll be disappointed. I, that's not the way that I approach things or approach the um, what's in the text, the, these ancient texts. I approach them from the view of a practitioner as well as from the view of a certain amount of scholarship. But also, what is relevant for us today and now? Right? If, if I were teaching at a university, perhaps um, I would have a different stance, but I'm teaching here. So that's a little bit about myself and the approach that I plan to take today. If any of you haven't been to IMC before, there's bathrooms in the back and there's a kitchen in the back. So you're, um, and there's a tea samovar in the back. So you're welcome to help yourself to uh, using the microwave, using the refrigerator, there's filtered water, having some tea. There's lots of tea in the drawers and using the bathroom. We'll have a number of breaks. I don't uh, intend to make these be marathon sessions. That's not fun either. So maybe I'll start, um, I, my plan is to kind of go like really broad and then as the day goes on, we'll get a little bit more and more specific. So I'll start really broad, kind of like a brief history, really brief history of mindfulness. So some of you may know, right, and maybe the reason why you're here is mindfulness is certainly in the news, is certainly like in the... I don't know what's the word is, the zeitgeist maybe, what's kind of these days, at least kind of the world that I'm in, right? I see it popping up all the um, time in interesting places, congressmen that's practicing, the hospitals that are um, recommending mindfulness, uh, mindfulness being offered in different schools. And when I visit my parents, uh, my mom, she's so cute. She, like, cuts out articles in the newspaper that she sees that are about mindfulness, and it's popping up in all these different places. So it's really, you know, becoming more and more mainstream. But, of course, it wasn't always that way. Back in 1979, uh, John Kabat-Zinn, I'm not sure if that's when he published the paper or he did exactly the first study of mindfulness-based stress reduction back at the University of Massachusetts. So that is the application of mindfulness to reducing the stress. 1979, so it's taken quite a few years, a couple of decades, for it to really catch on. But that, I think, is a um, key moment when it became this secularized version of mindfulness, became more and more available or and it had some credibility, right, with this kind of scientific uh, background. But of course, 1979 is not when it started. The roots of mindfulness go back to the teachings of the Buddha 2,600 years ago, the, when the Buddha is believed to have lived in uh, northeast India. And as part of the Buddhist teachings, he offered a body of practices and principles. And of course, mindfulness is one of those practices. And the Buddha offered these, or this is what the tradition, the Buddhist tradition holds, offered these um, with the belief that it would help sustain human beings in their quest for happiness, in their quest for spiritual freedom, that mindfulness would be a key part of this. 
And at the heart of kind of the Buddhist systems, at least from our, um, the way this, the Buddhist tradition which I'm sitting in and which I'm see is, uh, and that is inspired by Theravada Buddhism. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this later. We, we say that the heart of the system of training is mindfulness or meditation and mindfulness is part of it and concentration is part of it. And in two weeks, uh, Richard Shankman will be talking about concentration, whereas today I'm really focusing on mindfulness. In some ways, this distinction makes sense between mindfulness and concentration. In some ways, it doesn't make sense. But um, they are different approaches to practice. But um, if you practice mindfulness, you'll just naturally get concentrated. And if you're practicing concentration, you need to have some mindfulness. So they definitely go together. And it wasn't like in the ancient texts that the Buddha said, um, you know, only do one and don't do the other or anything like this. But we do see them separated. So, okay, some 2,600 years ago, but I like to think about this. It kind of reminds me of how um, uh, seemingly random events kind of influence each other. In the 1960s and the 1970s, it became much less expensive to travel around the world. Right? Jet travel started to come up. That means teachers from Asia were starting to come from America, and Westerners were starting to go to Asia. Couple that with the creation of the Peace Corps. So people were going to Thailand, Burma, other places in Southeast Asia, and living there and seeing how the people lived and being inspired by the people, being inspired by the Buddhist traditions that they saw there. So these two kind of cultural phenomena, uh, affordable travel, easier travel, and the Peace Corps just started to in kind of increase this uh, blending of uh, East and West traditions. So many of these Westerners, when they uh, went into the Peace Corps or went to India and Southeast Asia, they came back to the United States, to their homes. And when they brought with them, when they came back, they brought with them some of the teachings. So this tradition, which uh, IMC is um, established in, was um, founded by Gil Fronstall, who he himself practiced in Asia and came back. And some of his teachers, uh, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg, they went to Asia and came back. But what they brought back was, um, of course, influenced by their being Westerners, right? They weren't... Uh, uh, monks, well, they were monks while they were in Asia, but they came back, they disrobed and came back. So what was brought back with mindfulness was brought back without a lot of its um, cultural context in which it occurred. It was the, these individuals, they brought back what made the most sense to them, what affected them as Westerners who had, some of them were in graduate school for philosophy. Some of them were in uh, medical schools, right? So the version of mindfulness that we received kind of was done through the filter of these individuals and just their own preferences and their own um, understanding and their own belief in what would help other people. This isn't unusual. We see this happening with Buddhism a lot, that when it moves into different parts of the world, it changes and morphs. 
So, what mindfulness, I talked about the systems of training, but mindfulness occurs in a context of Buddhist practice and Buddhist study, but in particular, you may be familiar with it in three different lists. Right, you know how the, if you're familiar with Buddhists, you know how they love the list. Four Noble Truths is the kind of the classic one. Does anybody know what is a list in which uh, mindfulness occurs? This is not a trick question. These are things that um, maybe uh, I'll give you a hint. We have a year-long program that teaches this every year. A full path. Excellent. So mindfulness is part of the eightfold path. There's eight elements, and mindfulness is one of them. Does anybody know the sequence of uh, these in the eightfold path? It's fine if you don't. I'll give you a little hint. This is how I remember it. I have this acronym, Visa Lempsi. <laughs> so I'm always going, Visa Lempsi. Right view, right intention, right uh, visa, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So you see mindfulness is the seventh, second to the last, and before it is effort, and after it is concentration. So it's just one of eight elements any other list that you can think of that uh, has uh, mindfulness in it? I think that there will be a series. There was a year-long series that taught this sequence as well, and that will be repeated, I think, uh, starting the fall again. Sylvie, yes, seven factors of awakening. This list is a little bit harder to remember for me. I don't have a nice acronym for it. Does anybody uh, know the list for this, the order for this? Yeah. So what are the seven factors of awakening? These are qualities that when cultivated support freedom. That's kind of like, you know, a really uh, short one. And in this one, mindfulness is first. Mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. There's no reason for you to remember all these, but just for you to know that mindfulness happens within a context of these um, other qualities to be cultivated and developed. I'm thinking of one more list. There'll be a day-long on this, I think in October. There's often day-longs, lots of Dharma talks on this list. List of five things. There's mindfulness. Five faculties. So like these are the five qualities to be developed. And this is faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. So it's not like mindfulness is just, you know, a little bit here, just a tiny little corner of the Buddhist practice. In fact, it's really in the so many different systems and in these uh, different lists. But you, it's uh, legitimate to ask, okay, well, yeah, well, what is it? What is mindfulness? Maybe it's important, it's in these different lists, but what is it? So in my mind, there's a few ways that we can explore this, and we'll be doing this today. One is to do it, 
to do mindfulness and just discover for ourselves, what is this thing that we're doing? To kind of like look at it. The second is we can look at some of the similes or some of the imagery in the suttas. Often uh, in the Buddhist teachings, they use similes as a way to um, make it, give a point across. We can look at um, how mindfulness is described, like how it's, what it's compared to. And the third is um, we can look at, okay, well, what are the definitions that are said in the text? I mean, what, what do these ancient scriptural texts say about mindfulness? You may be surprised to hear that there is no clear definition of mindfulness in the text. If there were, we wouldn't be, I don't know, it would be quite different. But instead, we can use kind of like an operational definition how is it understood in these lists? How is it understood? Uh, how is it taught? Uh, what are the practices that are associated with being mindfulness? And in this way, we can get a sense of what exactly is mindfulness. And maybe I'll say that uh, the Pali word, so Pali is the language of which these um, ancient texts were preserved. So the Pali word for mindfulness is sati, S-A-T-I. It's not a mistake that this is called the sati center. It's a nice alliterative uh, title and sati, with that direction that this, the center of mindfulness. So I thought it might, uh, would lead us in a guided meditation that uh, incorporating some of what um, is in the text. But before I do that, does anybody have any questions or comments about what I've said so far? Yeah, so where does the Four Noble Truths come into this? That's such a, um, a great question. I'll say there's a, a few um, obvious ways. That is... We're going to look at the four establishments of mindfulness later in the day that comes out of a particular text, the Satipatthana Sutta. And in that text, it includes being um, the Four Noble Truths is in there as a way to practice with the Four Noble Truths with mindfulness, and it also supports mindfulness. That's one answer. The second answer is that the um, mindfulness is really, um, we'll see as the kind of the day unfolds, is really as a way to support the lessening of suffering, the increase of happiness and ease. And the Four Noble Truths, one of the key teachings of the Buddha, is also about this, is about this. First Noble Truth, there is suffering. Second Noble Truth, there is a cause for suffering. Third Noble Truth, there is the ending of suffering, and the fourth noble truth, there is a way to the ending of suffering. Fourth noble truth, there's a way to the ending of suffering, includes mindfulness. So mindfulness helps us see suffering. It helps us find a way to end suffering and also supports the practice of other things. Does, is that helpful? Okay, so I thought we would do a, a short uh, guided meditation. So this guided meditation, we'll see how this works. I tried to sketch this out, and I'll be frank, that the language from 2,600 years ago is a little bit clunky in English. So 
I'll be using some of my own words, and I'll be sometimes using some of the words that are in the sutta. So if it feels sometimes a little bit awkward, you can like, oh, okay, maybe that's why. Oh, no, 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 everything will be in English. Everything's in English. Nobody wants to listen to a bunch of Pali. <laughs> that being said, so Sylvie asked me, um, you know, will it uh, be in translation? Uh, just as a, a little aside, recently I was on um, retreat, and I actually have studied a lot of Pali. I know a lot of Pali, but I read Pali. I don't hear it, right? People don't talk to me in Pali. So I have familiarity with it, with reading it, what the words look like. I mean... Yeah, it's just different, right, when you only read a language as opposed to when you hear it or speak or something. So on a recent retreat, uh, one of the teachers played a um, a recording of somebody chanting in Pali the sutta, something that we're going to um, maybe, actually a little bit of what I'm going to read here in English. It was beautiful. I was so touched by it. It turned out to be so beautiful. And uh, that's how, you know, these suttas were preserved thousands of years, right? As people chanted them. And I was surprised how much my heart was touched by it, actually hearing this. And um, other people who don't study Pali, they said they were touched too. I think maybe that had to do with the person who was doing the chanting, that they were, their heart was, I don't know what their heart was exactly. To me, it felt like their heart was filled with, love and care and reverence and I don't know something beautiful so so sorry I'm not going to be chanting anything <laughs> I'll try to fill my heart with love and care and reverence though <laughs> for this guided meditation okay so in the suttas it says to sit down and set your body upright so in whatever way that feels for you, I interpret it as make sure that my spine is upright. Have this certain um, erectness or steadiness, but in a way that isn't filled with tension, in a way that allows the the limbs to hang from the spine. And then we're going to do mindfulness of breathing. The texts are to establish mindfulness in the front. So we can interpret in the front as usually the front of the body. So that might be the abdomen moving. It might be the chest moving. It might be the feeling of air around the nose. Different people interpret this differently you can interpret it in a way that feels like it supports your practice. So establish a certain sense of attention, awareness, with the sensations of breathing in the abdomen, the chest, or the nose. Very simple.
and being mindful one breathes in and being mindful one breathes out If you find your mind wandering, that doesn't have to be a problem. Just come back to the sensations of taking an in-breath, taking an out-breath. you find yourself lost in thought, forgetting that you're supposed to be here meditating, that's okay, just begin again. Just noticing the movement of the body, the sensations associated with in-breaths and out-breaths. Now we're going to include the quality of the breath. The text says, breathing in long, one knows. I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows. I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows. I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. I interpret long and short as kind of like I said, a deep breath, shallow breath. It's all okay. We just know, oh, this is shallow, this is deep, this is an in-breath, this is an out-breath.
So not only are we paying attention to the breath, but also the quality of the breath. Maybe we can add, is it jagged or is it smooth? Does it feel easeful? Maybe it's a little tight. That will expand our awareness even more to include the whole body. So breathe in, experiencing the whole body, and breathe out, experiencing the whole body. In whatever way that makes sense to you. Maybe it's a very brief, light body scan. Maybe it's a f- sensation of the breath being pulled through the whole body. And we can uh, allow this breathing out, experiencing the whole body to calm the body, relax the body, soften the body, allow any letting go that may naturally happen. So you can breathe in, calming the body and breathe out, calming the body. If ever all these instructions feel too complicated, you could just very simply bring your awareness, bring your attention, be mindful of the sensations of breathing. 
And then to end this this meditation, you can feel your body, the pressure of the chair or the cushion against your body. Feel your feet on the ground. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. So in that meditation, I started with um, guiding us to first just bring mindfulness to the front and then to um, be mindful breathing in and breathing out and then to know whether one breathes in long or short, so to know the quality of the breath and then to expand it a little bit to the whole body And then also to include this idea of relaxing or letting go. So this progression is very common in the text. It's in the primary um, text, the Satipatthana Sutta, the one that we'll be exploring today. Also, um, Anapanasati Sutta, that is the discourse on mindfulness of breathing. And the Kayagata Satisutta the discourse on mindfulness of the body and Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on establishing mindfulness. These are the three main texts that talk about mindfulness and all three of them share this exact practice. Pretty straightforward and it's pretty, uh, I think probably a lot of it wasn't completely unfamiliar to you. It's a little bit chilly in here. Can I ask somebody to put the thermostat, just do like the red arrow up a little bit so that the air conditioning thank you the the um, oh I, I don't care if they come in the front or the the back but I don't um, I just forgot to unlock it to make that's why the back door <laughs> is locked nothing in particular So I'd love to hear from you. How was that? Uh, any comments? Was that pretty straightforward? What, uh, w- from that experience, what, A, w- how was that like for you? And B, what's your understanding of mindfulness with the way that we kind of went through this progression? I have a m- microphone here so everybody can see, or uh, hear. I don't know if the microphone will help people see you, maybe. (laughs) Would anybody like to make a comment on how that was? Sylvie? I had. I think we have to turn that on. Yeah, is it working now? I think so. Okay. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
I I think I heard I heard that before, but you know, I realized that when I meditate, I don't think about you know what you are just doing, but it feels like it comes naturally because I mean, the first thing I probably just how is my breath? That's like I consciously think about it, but I notice that I'm not always so aware of all my body, but then I suddenly become more aware of the whole body and I naturally get more relaxed. So it feels like it it just happens. Fantastic. Thank you, Silly. I think you're pointing to something really, uh, I think it's interesting and important. That is, these things that are in the suttas and the early Buddhist scriptures, are they prescriptive? This is what we should do. Or are they descriptive? This is what naturally happens. Are these instructions? This is what you should do? Or is this is how practice just naturally unfolds and uh, the Buddha is describing it for people? This is something worthwhile for us to explore and to keep in mind. And it may be, this is for, I'll say for myself, I find it to be both. Sometimes it is prescriptive. Sometimes it reminds me of things that I forgot or things that I'm not paying attention to. And uh, sometimes it's just descriptive, like, oh, yeah, that is what happens. I just hadn't quite uh, thought about it. But this is something we can come back to again and again, this play between prescriptive and descriptive. And I will say that um, people of different temperaments also kind of have the, may have a different view of this. I tend to be a type of person. I want to do whatever I damn well please. Thank you. So I like it to be a little bit more descriptive than prescriptive. Whereas there may be times in our lives, times in our practice, where we want some guidance. Like, what should we do? And so maybe the exact same thing can be prescriptive. So it doesn't mean that it's one or the other. And I'll also say there are teachers. I just described the way that I am. But of course, not all teachers are the same. Some teachers are like, no, you have to do it this way, and you have to do it in this particular sequence, in this particular manner. And there's some real advantages to that. One is it makes so we don't always follow our preferences. And it also helps that we don't like follow into, drop into our habits or drop into just, um, you know, we, it helps us to maybe see little corners of our experience that perhaps aren't so evident to us. So this is something that we can continue to explore as the day goes on. But in that guided meditation, I used words like put your attention on, place your awareness on, be mindful. And, um, you know, in the West, we tend to kind of like use all these words as synonyms. I tend to hold them that way. That's my experience. But as we, um, to kind of help like understand what is mindfulness, what is sati, we can also look at how is mindfulness used. Like, what are some of the similes? What are the um, what is mindfulness compared to um, in some of the earliest suttas? Unless anybody else has a comment they'd like to say about um, about that uh, practice. Yeah, can we send a microphone uh, back there? But you know, some people may be using hearing assisted devices. It's helpful for them. Actually, I forgot to mention about hearing-assisted devices. If it's anybody needs some, there's a little bit of help, there's hearing-assisted devices right in this, on the other side of this wall here, and things can be amplified. Okay. 
Thank you. Um, I just want to share that uh, two summers ago, I attended a, um, is it MS? MBSR. MBSR. And uh, I remember going through similar practices, and I remember sharing that um, I didn't really like the, um, the breath and the body scan because I thought it, was, um, it, it, it wasn't helping me. So that was the beginning of the course, and then by the end of the course, and then, then I realized that, um, I, yes, I practice meditation on my own, informal, but I realized I was always in my head. You know, it's like an open object kind of meditation, like whatever comes in, that's what I observe. But I realized throughout the day, I was always holding my breath because I was always rushing to do things and get things done. And I realized that, that it was the breath and my body that really anchored um, my mind. And that really helped me to start practicing mindfulness. So that's why I really like the, um, the mindfulness of breath. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's quite something. When we start to be mindful, we can learn about ourselves mm-hmm. and can help us, I don't, yeah, learn about us, ourselves. I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Yes. Hi, my name is Joe, and uh, I kind of take uh, words and I take them abro- uh, apart and just to try to get the meaning of them, and just, uh, just the word attention, and I've heard that thrown around, and I've wondered, well, what is attention? And in meditation, I've heard my instructors say, well, uh, focus on, you know, attention uh, on a certain spot maybe uh, on your navel or someplace like that. And I sometimes wonder in my meditation whether I'm down there in that particular spot. It's like, am I doing it right and so forth? And I remember one Saturday morning, we had a meditation that morning. And before I went to the meditation, I went to a Whole Foods and ate a small breakfast and took a vitamin. And... After that, drove to the uh, to the center, and in the meditation, we sat down, and we focused uh, just below our navel, and that's when the word attention really, I realized what it was, and maybe I was doing it properly, but that uh, vitamin, I guess I hadn't eaten enough, so but my attention, every time I went there, that's where the vitamin was. And, <laughs> and I felt my, my stomach just uh, really getting upset every time I would focus down there. And that's when I realized, you know what? This attention really works. If one just focuses down there without really getting intellectual about it or trying to figure out, well, is it more to the left is it more to the right? Is it in the center? Am I, am I there? And I realized that just, just be there and not really try to analyze it. Just you're there already. And, but every time I would go down there, that vitamin would really upset my stomach at the point where I just got nauseous and, and I actually had to bring my attention back up and then I would take it back down again. And I realized in that meditation that one doesn't have to get intellectual about it, just just go down there and, and just relax and be there and it'll happen. 
Mm-hmm. And that's when I realized that the word attention. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Right? So it's something that we'll explore. This is about the felt experience, not our ideas about it. But often we don't really know the difference. It doesn't mean anything to us until we have an experience like this that we realize, oh, yeah, when you're kind of like in the body some in some way as opposed to in your mind. And that's kind of what mindfulness is pointing to is our direct experience. Not our ideas about what we're experiencing or our, any other idea about our direct experience. And often that, uh, this phrase that I'm talking about doesn't really make sense until you have a, this kind of direct experience. Like perhaps you had when you noticed that, oh yeah, when I'm with my breath is different than always being in the mind. My name is Sandy, and I'm very new to meditation. And I found as I was doing that, Um, I was very aware of my inhale and was it deep enough and why did it feel restricted and why did it feel like it stopped at a certain point and I went back to my previous experience about breathing which had to do with some voice lessons that I took years ago and how sometimes my teacher would tell me lie down on the floor take a deep breath and you will automatically take a breath that goes clear to your stomach and and so I found myself thinking, okay, where am I breathing? Is it shallowly up here? Is it down here? I think I got way too um, conscious about it and tried to just relax. But that feeling of, am I doing it right, was definitely, um, that question was definitely coming up for me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Part of this practice is breathing in long, one knows I'm bringing in long Breathing in short, one knows I'm bringing in short. So this is pointing to kind of just the simplicity. You know what's happening. And it may take some exploration or some investigation in the beginning to kind of gain some familiarity with our breathing. But I think the more practice we have, the more we can recognize like, oh, yeah, these sensations are associated with this type of a breath or something like this. But... It's thank you for pointing out the difference between actually having the experience and then am I doing it right and then a memory of something else and like all these other things, right? That's not exactly the same as staying with the sensations. But that is all of our experience in the beginning, right? In the beginning, we're not just with the breath. We are having these mental events that are going along with the um, experience. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about this as we go. So to continue exploring this idea of um, mindfulness, I wanted to um, read a few of just very, very short passages uh, that are from the suttas about mindfulness. And then we can talk about, well, what do these mean? How can we interpret them? Is it helpful? Maybe it's a number of these uh, point to different aspects of mindfulness. So this is, um, here's one that's uh, done in verse. Maybe I'll make a side comment about verse. So verse in Pali um, is done with a particular meter that is, you know, like, like pentameter or I don't know. I didn't study these things in school, but you, you know how like poetry sometimes like has a certain rhythm? So Pauli verse has a very definite rhythm. 
But in order to fit the rhythm, they played around with the words a little bit. Like, so they put different forms of the verb, in, or they would just not bother with verbs or something, or they'd put different forms of the word in and stuff. So verse and poly is very cryptic. It's kind of like the way that I think about it is like kind of like Shakespearean poly. So not only do you have to know poly, but you all have to know kind of these weird permutations and often ancient, really obscure uh, variations of the words. That's why if you ever read different translations of the same verse, they can be wildly different because the verse is really hard to uh, translate. I'll just offer that. That being said, this is a um, translation by Bhikkhu Bodhi, whom I have the utmost respect for. He's an incredible, incredible translator, and he's the primary translator of our text. So the simile of the plow blade, and this is an excerpt. Kasi Bharadwaja addressed the Blessed One in verse. Just, you know, some person addressed the Buddha, talks to the Buddha. You claim to be a person who works the plow, but I do not see your plowing. If you are one who plows, answer me, how should we understand your plowing? This was in the context of um, Kasi Bharadwaja. He himself was a farmer, and uh, the Buddha was without going into the big story. I'll just say, so the, this person wanted to say, well, if you're like me, how come you're not, you say you're plowing, but I don't see you plowing. And the Buddha responds, faith is the seed. Austerity is the rain. Wisdom, my yoke and plow. Moral regret is the pole. Mind the yoke tie. Mindfulness, my plow, blade, and prod. I'll read that again. So he, maybe I'll say, so the Buddha, right, he's describing uh, a plow of, I don't know, I guess just a plow in general, but he's like, right, giving different uh, meanings to the different parts. So I'll, I'll read it again. Faith is the seed, austerity is the rain, wisdom my yoke and plow. Moral regret is the pole. Mind the yoke tie. Mindfulness, my plow blade and prod. So without going into all the different ones, we could do this whole class on these kind of verses here. Mindfulness is the plow blade and the prod. So it has two things. So mindfulness is the actual piece of metal that's going into the soil. And it's also the prod. That is, it's what's kind of like telling the oxen, like, go here, go there, don't go over here, or something like that. For you, what kind of quality does that point to you for mindfulness? It's more than just knowing what's happening in the present moment. W what else is it? What else is like having the blade that um, cuts through the ground or guiding the oxen? Well, what other kind of qualities does that evoke? Or if you could just say, and I'll repeat after you. It prepares the ground for the seed. Prepares the ground for the seed. Fantastic. 
Fantastic. Right? So mindfulness kind of helps make the soil ready. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, Lydia. I'm going to repeat what you just said. So the plow blade is steady and go for it is what I think we said. Fantastic. Yes. Thank you. And Yes. And a prod is about kind of directing the mind so it doesn't flow everywhere. And you said gently, you know, a little bit, don't go over here, a little bit, don't go over there, something like that. Yes, fantastic, thank you. Anything else? Yes. Thank you. She said that she liked that faith comes first. And, and without that, there's really no point of uh, plowing. And it's true, right? It does take a certain amount of faith. Like, okay, I believe that what I'm about to do is going to produce results. I believe that if I plant wheat seeds, wheat will grow. I believe that if I plant wheat seeds, that corn is not going to grow, wheat is going to grow, right? This, but there's a certain type of faith that this is going to happen. You don't see it right then, right? It takes some, uh, some cultivation to do that. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so this um, simile kind of points to that mindfulness is more than just being aware in the present moment. There's a certain amount of preparing the ground, preparing our bodies, preparing our minds, for other teachings, for what's going to happen, being receptive. There's also this quality of going in a particular direction. It's not um, just random where the cows are going, where the oxen are going, wherever they want to go. So that points to something else with mindfulness. Here's another one. This one's a little bit shorter. It's not in verse. Suppose a person were to enter a thorny forest. There would be thorns in front and behind, thorns to the left and right, thorns below and above. The person would go forward mindfully, thinking, may no thorn prick me. What does that mean, to go forward mindfully, may no thorn prick me? What does that mean to go forward mindfully in this context? Paying attention carefully. This means you have to be aware, right? You have to know, oh, there's a thorn over here. Oh, wait, there's a thorn over here and a thorn over there, right? So it's not just um, closed off. Uh, from all other experiences, you're kind of aware where the thorns are. Anybody, any other ideas? Uh, 
There's also a certain amount of intention. May no thorns prick me. Like noticing that I'm going forward mindfully, like with a particular intention to avoid suffering. We could use that uh, language. I'm using suffering as a generic word to cover a whole range of things. Discomfort, displeasure, dissatisfaction, as well as just flat-out suffering. Big, big range. Kind of in the Buddhist teachings, we use suffering as a shortcut for that. So when I use that word, I'll try not to use it just exclusively, but it means also just subtle um, dissatisfaction, subtle unhappiness. Yes, do you have a microphone right there, Sylvie? Do you want to? I'm glad you said that because I hear that a lot in kind of in, um, languages of of Buddhist cultures, and I've always wondered why is this may such and such and such. Like you said, it's the intention, but it feels like it's also a prayer a little bit. Um, It's like if I wanted to do something with an intention, um, I don't know that I would use may I be protected to do that. I would just do it. Can you kind of talk a little more about this may? Yes, I'll, I'll agree with you that the English is clunky, and I don't think any of us use that expression, may I go forward not being pricked by thorns. <laughs> I don't use that type of language. But I think, um, and the, let's see here. Um, I'm sorry? Oh, yeah, 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 it comes all the time. It's the way that we translate a particular uh, thing in Pali that we don't have a good English way to um, say. So often we use this kind of clunky English to use it, um, but the way that, um, yeah, intention, motivation, aspiration, those types of things. So it's about something that hasn't happened yet, but we do want it to happen in the future or not happen. So it's something that's, um, yeah, maybe I'll just leave it like that. And so in English, we kind of use it as may this not happen, may it happen. But in Pali, the, it's, it's much more simple. It's like a verb that describes something that doesn't exist yet. Is that helpful? Yeah. I think uh, well, we find this a lot, right, that things are feel awkward in uh, English, uh, the way that they're translated. So let me check in with you guys. So I have um, a number of these similes. Uh, but we've been sitting here for an hour. So that's sometimes kind of, you know, the limit of um, how long we want to sit still in one place. So why don't we get into small groups so we can rearrange the chairs, get up and move around, and we can talk about similes in small groups. And we won't do, this won't take long. Um, I'll assign different similes. I have a piece of paper that has lots of different similes on it, and I'll just assign a different group. Okay, you do simile one, you do simile two, simile three. And you can just talk about it a little bit, and then we'll come back and... Um, 
discuss it in the bigger group. And that's kind of a way to bring a little bit more energy into the room after an hour of kind of sitting still, listening to me primarily. Now you can kind of bring your voices into the room. So let me count. I think there's 29 of us. I'm not yet. Let's not turn this off yet. Um, and I have one, two, three, four. Wow. Okay. So there's a little bit more here than I was expecting. So um, let's count off by uh, six, five. Yes. So we'll count off by fives and then we'll have the ones get together and the twos get together, etc. And then we can start right here. And then, okay, yeah. And then we'll come down here. No, I think five. So you're, so you, I'm sorry, you're one. This person's asleep. I don't blame him. <laughs> you get to be number three. Okay. And then uh, we'll come up here to this front row. Three, and then we'll come over here. Four. And then we'll come over here. One. Yes, in the back. Four. And then. Uh, yeah, so. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then I think Randy, right? You and five. Okay. I think everybody has a number, right? Okay. So. Um, how about ones over here, uh, twos um, over there in that corner, threes over here, fours over there, and fives in the back. And then I'm going to come around to each and give um, a similes, and then you can just talk about them in a short bit, and then we'll um, talk about them in a larger group. So now can you just pause the recording? from like the different groups, uh, some ideas that came up. And again, don't feel pressured that you have to have um, necessarily represent all the ideas in your group. It's more wh whomever amongst you is a little bit more of an extrovert and is willing to speak into a microphone and to talk about uh, some of the different similes. So for group one that was here, the simile of the gatekeeper Maybe I'll read this really quickly. In a, for in a fortress, the gatekeeper is wise, competent, and intelligent, one who keeps out strangers and admits acquaintances. So, too, with mindfulness as his gatekeeper, the noble disciple abandons the unwholesome and develops the wholesome, abandons what is blameworthy and develops what is blameless. Does anybody from group one want to comment on this? What are some ways that you, we can understand mindfulness? What are some of the qualities, the aspects, the activity? Something about mindfulness here. Yes. And let's, yeah, we'll move, use the microphones. Thank you. Is this on? Nope. It doesn't sound like it's on. Well, we had some trouble with... Um, whether or not, back when this was written, were all strangers bad? 
and all acquaintances were good. Yeah. Yeah, right? So he says, who keeps out strangers and admits acquaintances. Yeah, when you're, when you're practicing mindfulness, aren't you just supposed to notice what comes up instead of pushing away all strangers and letting all um, acquaintances be? Are you, we thought you're not supposed to push away. You're just supposed to know what comes up. Yeah, right? This is such a common way that mindfulness is taught, certainly kind of in the secular setting, and it's such a common way that we understand mindfulness. But here it suggests there's a little bit more, right? That there's this recognition of, like, here they're using acquaintance and stranger, but definitely a recognition of there's two types of experiences or two types of people. And mindfulness helps to know which one is which of these two types they use these words wholesome unwholesome blameworthy and blameless so mindfulness seems to in here one way to interpret it is that there's a knowing but that has also a quality of knowing is this something that's helpful or not helpful supportive or not supportive something like that It's one way to interpret it. We definitely found the second sentence clearer. Yeah. Yeah. But the blameworthy and the wholesome, yes. So some people interpret this, I'm one of those people, that mindfulness in the Buddhist context has a a quality that helps us on our practice. What's supportive, what isn't. What's uh, wholesome, what isn't? What's on the path to greater freedom, what isn't? That's different than what's often taught for um, in the secular setting, which is fine. And um, later, uh, when we talk about the definition, quote-unquote, of mindfulness, we can talk about this some more, the difference between just knowing and kind of making an assessment about it. Great, thank you. Does anybody else have a comment they'd like to make about this one? Yes. I actually have a question. Um, if you have the Can we use the microphone? Can we? Here's a green one. Can we send it back to the corner? Thank you. Um, so in English, it was strangers and acquaintances. Um, I don't know what it was in Pali. Um, it would take me a little time to look that up, but okay. For those of you who are interested, this uh, AN767, that's if you wanted to go back into the suttas, that's where you would find it, and Gudara Nikaya, Chapter 7, uh, Section 67. But uh, maybe I'll add to that. This is a simile. So uh, it's the idea of right, that things that are like something else, things that are similar. So that's why there's, right, as opposed to using direct language. We'll look at some direct language later. But sometimes it's more colorful and more helpful to look at uh, similes. How about uh, the second one, simile of the cow herder? At the beginning of the season, when the crops thicken, a cowherder would guard the cows by poking and tapping them with a stick to check and curb them. Why? 
because the cowherder sees that he could be flogged, imprisoned, fined, or blamed if he let the cows stray into the crops. At the end of the season, when all the crops have been brought in, a cowherder would guard the cows while staying at the foot of a tree or out in the open, since the cowherder needs only to be mindful that the cows are there. What does kind of mindfulness mean here? What does this type of mindfulness point to here? Anybody from the second group want to make a comment? <laughs> okay, great, thank you. Can we send that microphone to... Is the microphone on? I'm not sure. Is there a green light? No. Yeah. Now there is. Okay. Yeah, it's helpful to hold it like this. So that you're speaking into the top as opposed to the side. Okay. If, you eat, if you're eating it, that could be helpful. <laughs> it smells kind of weird. Um, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. So we said that there are times in life when you have to be more vigilant and more aware, whether that's like attempt, we were kind of talking about either a temptation or something that could potentially cause you longer term harm. So that's, uh, that's kind of when the, you're poking and, and tapping, keeping the mind and mindfulness going in, in a direction that's safe and that's right for you. And then there are other times when you can just relax and rest in awareness there isn't as much at stake there isn't as much kind of risk to your life and well-being and uh so we said that that was how we saw those two different different things yeah thank you thank you Mm -hmm. like this suggestion that mindfulness can have two different um, maybe qualities one maybe there's a certain amount of energy because it's you it's really important and you need to be there and other times when it can it can be more relaxed, and there isn't a sense of uh, um, impending problems if you're not mindful. So you tend to be a little bit more relaxed. Thank you. But this pointing to two different maybe modes of mindfulness, one that has a little bit more. I'm going like this. What does this mean? Uh, I think you use the word vigilance, right? I think that's a good word. Yeah, vigilance. What about the third one? Simile of the surgeon's probe. Suppose a person were wounded by an arrow smeared with poison. A surgeon would cut around the opening of the wound and probe for the arrow using a probe. Then the surgeon would pull out the arrow and expel the poison without leaving a trace. The meaning of the simile is this. Wound is a term for the six senses. Poison is a term for ignorance. Arrow is a term for craving. Probe is a term for mindfulness. Knife is a term for wisdom. And surgeon is a term for the Buddha. There's a number of places in the suttas where the, uh, it's very common actually, when in the simile where the Buddha gives a teaching and then he does this, he explains, or this means that, this means this, that type of thing. 
I'm not sure, but there's still a way. How could we understand mindfulness as a probe here? Anybody from group three want to comment? There's a microphone right here, Jim, if you... I saw you looking around. (laughs) You may have to turn it on. I'm not sure. Oh, no, it's on. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, mindfulness uh, as the probe, it's a little bit of a bloody, uh, rather uh, frightening simile when you think about it. But... Kind of, I think at the same time, I mean, in a way, life is frightening if we don't approach it with an awareness. Uh, you know, we can be frightened by shadows on the wall, like uh, happened in the cave for Plato. And so uh, I just, I think the simile is uh, about as perfect of a simile as you can possibly get. Um, we ended up uh, using ice cream, a uh, craving for ice cream as uh, uh, our way of expressing it. And uh, so the, the craving for the, the craving, it's the craving, it's not the ice cream, it's not seeing the ice cream or smelling the ice cream or even eating the ice cream. That's not the problem. The problem is when we crave it, we have to have it. And when we're ignorant of that craving, and so, the, the in the simile, the ignorance is the poison, and the and the arrow is the craving. And so, it's the the ignorance and the craving together that need to be um, first of all identified, and then second of all uh, taken out. So I. Anyway, thanks for giving us a really good, <laughs> strong, <laughs> intense simile. <laughs> and what can you understand about mindfulness as a probe? Like, what is that activity probing, using a probe and probing? What does that feel like? We could send it back here, the microphone back. Or, or there is one there. Okay, great. Yeah, oh, I don't know. There would be a green light that's on the side. And if not, you can push underneath it. So I, I, the way I looked at this, I think that mindfulness kind of helps us to see um, where that craving is coming from. I mean, what's, I mean, if you're if you're desiring ice cream, maybe you can you can satisfy that desire. But as someone was saying in our group, but maybe you want more ice cream later, or maybe that doesn't satisfy you, and you go on to something else. So I think mindfulness helps you to work through the details of what's going on in the depths of that craving and what that yeah. craving actually means. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And maybe I'll point out to this too that right, a probe is not a scalpel necessarily, right? A probe is something that's just trying to like, what's here? What's, what's, what's here? As opposed to necessarily going in and pulling apart the flesh and to look and see or something like this. I mean, there may be some consequences of probing and looking, but it's, um, it's a little bit different way to understand mindfulness. So, great, thank you. Yes. Can you use that microphone, please? So I was part of that group, and so... I was kind of thinking of it very straightforward. If you're not mindful as you're probing, you're going to not take out the arrow correctly or 
the poison correctly or you might hurt or kill the person or so forth thank you that's right that's right thank you that's a nice addition okay the fourth one oh I'm sorry did you don't necessarily insist on saying it just struck me as uh, important that uh, it's pretty painful and uh, uh, the thing about mindfulness is that often people don't want to see the painful things and they tend to turn away from it and I think that Simile explains very clearly that yes, it's unpleasant. Nobody wants something to be stuck in their wound and stirred around the arrow, obviously, but it's a necessary thing. So it kind of implies that uh, you shouldn't shrink away from the painful aspect or uh, aspects of mindfulness, mm-hmm. that it can bring up something that you don't want necessarily to see, but uh, you have to do it in order to get rid of these painful things. Fantastic. I love it. I hadn't thought of that. That's fantastic. You're absolutely right. Uh, right? I mean, mindfulness helps us with greater self-awareness, and then you know, it's not always good news, self-awareness, right? <laughs> what we learn about ourselves. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing this lady here struck a chord. Uh, I used to be an animal rights activist uh, with PETA, and uh, on the television I'd show video of animals and suffering and people would walk by and it's no turn that down turn it off we don't want to watch we don't want to see it and it would just that attitude would just blow my mind i just couldn't understand it don't they want to know what's happening but uh like this lady to my right said people don't run from suffering. They run from suffering. They don't want to see it. It's uh, out of mind, out of sight. But uh, Yeah, but maybe I'll add to that, that all of us, we have our particular, uh, we need to have certain resources. We need to feel stable. We need to have a certain amount of ease before we can handle some difficulties, right? It's not like we can always just be looking at the difficulties. The conditions have to be right, Right, and here the condition is there is a clear wound. The person is suffering, right? If you have an arrow stuck inside of you, so perhaps they're a little bit more willing to go there. So it's, I, I, I mean, I want to honor what you're saying, but also to say that you know not everybody is ready or wants to is able to see this, and mindfulness isn't asking us to do things that we're not ready to do. Right at the time. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, back then, it was. The feeling I had and the thought I had, but now I realize one has to be ready. Yeah. One has to be ready. Okay, I'm a little bit conscious of time. Do you want to say something? I just, I know you guys have been sitting for a while, but if you're willing to sit for a few more minutes, I'm willing, but... uh it strikes me too on that that um on this one that you know once they once you go the surgeon goes in and and looks at the situation that there's actually nothing wrong with the organism itself like except i mean it's been hurt by the arrow but it's the room just to remove the arrow is what's needed it's not to change the the, and that will heal that will cause the healing if you remove the arrow and the poison 
that it's nice. it's, it's interesting. Right. I've not read into that before. That it's very um, I don't know. Uh, re- it's relief, like relief. Oh, oh, you see, it's just the arrow needs to be taken out, and the poison needs to be extracted, and then the organism will be yes healing. Fantastic. Fantastic. That's a nice way. I hadn't thought of that either. But there's this assumption of this is a healthy person. Nothing inherently wrong with the person. They just have an arrow stuck in them. Great. Thank you. Um, So the fourth one, simile of animals tied to a post. Suppose a person would tie six animals to a post, a snake, a crocodile, a bird, a dog, a jackal, and a monkey. Each animal would pull in the direction of its own feeding ground and domain. When these animals became worn out and fatigued, they would come close to the post and stand, sit, or lie down. So, too, when a person has developed and cultivated mindfulness directed to the body, the eye does not pull in the direction of forms... The ear does not pull in the direction of sounds. The nose does not pull in the direction of odors. The tongue does not pull in the direction of tastes. The body does not pull in the direction of tactile objects. And the mind does not pull in the direction of mental phenomena. For those of you who don't know, in the Buddhist teachings, there are six senses. um, The usual five plus the mind as the sixth. And the simile, of course, has six animals and six senses. Would anybody from uh, group one, two, three, four like to uh, comment on these six animals? Jackals, monkeys, crocodiles, birds and snakes. Is this a little bit different than what we've, the other similes, that mindfulness is a post Nobody from group four wants to make a comment? Okay. Can we? S- I'm not sure where the microphones are. I think I would have had a rich discussion around multiple interpretations of the such here uh, One was obviously to tie to our six senses, and they sometimes just run and increase the cognitive load. Nice. Oh, is it not turned on? Yeah, no, it's on. Oh, there we go. But when a person has developed mindfulness and cultivated it, they sort of come back and center on their body, and all the senses come back and center on the body, and they're not pulled by the senses and other um, unhelpful states of mind. Yes. One interpretation. Nice. Nice. Thank you. Does anybody else have a, a comment on this? So in this way, mindfulness is a little, there's a different uh, emphasis here. There's a certain amount of what we might say sense restraint. And there's a certain amount of mindfulness. You're kind of, you're mindful of what you're mindful of. 
as opposed to being pulled around with um, all the senses. There's a certain kind of guardedness or a certain amount of, okay, this is what's happening now. This is uh, my experience, you know, as opposed to, um, I think, uh, as you said, like just being pulled. And when we're pulled by all, all our senses, the pursuit of pleasurable objects, without being mindful of it, we just get pulled along. We could spend our life long just getting pulled along in the pursuit of pleasurable experiences. And it's exhausting and not really completely satisfying either. We might have little moments of satisfaction when we um, acquire something, but it's not uh, conditions for lasting happiness. Okay, the last one. Group number five. Simile of the bowl of oil. Suppose a great crowd of people were assembled to watch it dance. Then a person came along and someone said to this person, you must carry this bowl of oil filled to the brim through the crowd to the dancer. A man with a drawn sword will be following right behind you. And wherever you spill even a drop of oil right there, he will chop off your head. This is the meaning. The bowl of oil filled to the brim is the designation for mindfulness directed to the body. Therefore, you should develop and cultivate mindfulness directed to the body. This is a little bit different too, right? It has a kind of almost macabre uh, tone to it, chopping the threat of having one's head chopped off. Anybody from group five want to make a comment? Here's some mic. Yeah, we were quite impressed by the violence of the image that if you are not mindful that you are going to die on the spot. Uh, But we thought that it's a great metaphor because it uh, communicates a rather abstract idea of mindfulness and puts it into a situation that it's very easy to imagine, to feel it in your own body, uh, how careful, how mindful you have to be in order to move this ball through the crowd of people that are not paying attention to you at all. And uh, we thought that... um, uh, that's uh, on the one hand, it's a great image that describes mindfulness, um, uh, the experience of mindfulness to somebody who um, may uh, not be familiar in thinking with abstract terms. And we thought, on the other hand, uh, that idea that if you are capable of that level of mindfulness, then it will protect you from. Uh, mortal danger that if you can develop that level of awareness and that level of mindfulness, then it's your path to safety. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Mindfulness is a way to help provide safety. Is Just really quickly, I think that uh, mindfulness is connecting with your body and being connected to your whole self. And if you're not being mindful, then you're disconnected from your body. So your head is kind of 
you're you've lost connection with your body because you're no longer paying attention. Fantastic! I never so that, thought of that's that. That's how I kind of saw it. So <laughs> you just lose your head. You're not connected anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are in a in I think a mental sense no longer connected. Yeah. And I think it's a physical way, a metaphor of showing that. So yeah, thank you. Maybe I'll just add one thing about this. For for me, it's interesting that this is in the context. Everybody else is watching this dancer. Right? You're being mindful. So like kind of like a greater society is like being entertained, you know, watching something. Maybe it's very evocative. Maybe it's very beautiful. I don't know. But you're still staying kind of mindful holding this uh, bowl of oil, which I think is interesting. Okay. Yes. Just one more interpretation. Um, it's, uh, again, I'm going to ask, is the microphone on? Is the green light on? Green light's on. Oh, it is on. Okay. Yes. So I was just thinking of what you said. And to be one with the dancer you know, the, and the crowd, you're all one dancing with the dance. But a thought, even one thought of me and mine that comes and separates me from the dance and essentially kills the oneness. Great. That's right. It kind of it uh, highlights the importance. You can't just be me, me, me. You have to be aware of others. Some people would interpret this of kind of the oneness, too. You kind of have to just join the crowd, go with the flow of kind of what the crowd is doing, be aware and be part of it. And at the same time, to have some mindfulness where other people around you may not have mindfulness, too. Thank you. Okay, thank you for hanging in there for this uh, last part as we kind of report it back. Let's take a break. So it's 11.20. Um, does 15 minutes seem like a, enough time? So um, let's come back at 11.36. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so can you stop the recording now?